Hello and welcome to the Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Ray, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Mr. Jack Slayton. Good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you? Tired. It's been a long couple of weeks, but uh, as well, it's been a long year, um, but you know, it's almost over. It's almost over, and uh, to, yeah, everyone's had such a such a hard year, long year worldwide, so uh, tonight we got a little bit of a different episode for you, not necessarily a doom metal band or a black metal band. Um, we have got something uh, equally subversive. We have Mr. Steve Stoliar, a uh, writer, actor, producer, and author of Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. So it's, uh, it's a uh, super privilege to have him on, um, and, and he's a hell of a raconteur and, and uh, just a hell of a cool guy. Um, just a little bit of, uh, I guess, you know, backstory. I'm a huge Groucho Marx fan, Marx Brothers fan. I think the first thing I remember seeing in this world is Groucho dancing on like a black and white TV. And uh, to be able to uh, talk to Steve, who's, you know, such an accomplished writer, you know, and, and, and to be able to uh, hear about those years firsthand, you know, kind of the last years of Groucho Marx is, is just fascinating to me um and uh, you're a big groucho marx marx brothers fan aren't you mr jack oh absolutely and this is this is a really fun episode it's 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 a personal episode in a lot of ways because uh just what johnny here and i grew up watching and things that we saw on um on tv as kids that our parents had shown us and things like that and and to get a uh a little more insight into this man that is a legend um is this is a lot of fun yeah yeah and uh the the um the the book which you need to pick up and you can pick it up steve's going to tell you on the podcast but you know i uh, i'd recommend going into his website and uh any other place you you scout books but um the, it it is it's going to be made into a movie and it's it's as readable i i can't i don't know how many times i've read it at this point so um without further ado mr steve stoliar today on the podcast we are fortunate enough to be speaking with a writer and producer who has worked with dick cavett written for television shows such as murder she wrote simon and simon the new wkrp in cincinnati legend and sliders and he also worked for the one and only Groucho Marx during his final years. His excellent book, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, is soon to be a major motion picture. Uh, please welcome to the show a dream guest for us, Mr. Steve Stoliar. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing fine. How about yourself, Mr. Oh, Ray? Excellent, excellent. So, just so great to meet you. So great to talk to you. And uh, thanks. Let's, let's jump right in. We were talking before we got recording. How I think we were both born at the uh, the wrong time. We've been told both. Um, how were you first exposed to the genius and insanity of of Mr. Groucho Marx? Well, I think some of it seeped in subliminally because 
I had an Uncle Joe, my mother's brother, who had a great sense of humor. He was balding, had glasses, a mustache, smoked a cigar, and wiggled his eyebrows. So there, I think there was something very familiar and I guess familial about Groucho when I first saw him. I have very vague but pleasant memories of the duck dropping down on You Bet Your Life right. uh, when I was super young. Um, that's all I remember of the show. And But also my parents used to quote lines from the movies like being vaccinated with a phonograph needle. So it's sort of like the way was being paved between Uncle Joe and my parents and uh, my own sensibilities. So that when I first became really aware of Groucho and his siblings, uh, I, I would say that was probably early high school uh, when I started catching their films. I remember they showed A Night at the Opera during two successive lunch breaks uh, in in the auditorium. And I remember having a, an extremely dry burrito on a paper plate, and it was a toss-up whether the burrito or the paper plate was the better tasting item. But uh, I at least got to see Night at the Opera in two parts, and that pretty much cemented my interest, and I wanted to see more Marx Brothers movies, but of course, for, for some of your younger listeners, uh, you couldn't just call up a movie if you wanted to see it. Uh, there was no TCM, there was no streaming, there wasn't even um, VCRs and VHS, uh, Turner Classic Movies, and you you had to luck out that some local station would be showing a Marx Brothers movie. I would get the TV guide each week and go through it page by page and then circle the movies I wanted to see. And if I was lucky, it would be on in the afternoon on the weekends. But more often, the old classic films were shown in the wee hours after Carson, after Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show, into that vague netherworld of local car commercials. And, and uh, you know, I just would will myself to stay awake and somehow manage to cross off the list a lot of Marx Brothers movies. There would occasionally be something at a revival house where I could see it in a theater as it was meant to be seen, but there really weren't many of them in Los Angeles in the 60s and very early 70s. So it was mostly just catch as catch can or can't on television. And uh, I just, I so related to Groucho, his, his irreverent sense of humor and the wordplay really dovetailed into the kind of humor that I respond to. And so I started reading everything I could. There weren't a lot of books then about the March Brothers. It was sort of the, before the big explosion and interest in in looking back at silent films and films of the 30s. Um, there just weren't all that many, but whatever was out, I devoured. And all of my friends were into the March Brothers. It was sort of a prerequisite for being a friend of ours. And we would try to memorize 
the jokes and the lines from the films. And then that record came out, narrated by Gary Owens, where he talks <laughs> about the inimitable Harpo. And, uh, but what was great about it was there were excerpts from the Marx Brothers Paramount films. And so with the record player, we could play it over and over again and learn the monologues and learn the jokes. And that was a big help. And it was also tantalizing because somehow... Uh, the people that put the record out were able to get some audio clips from Animal Crackers, which was the second Marx Brothers film, and it, it had uh, the copyright had expired and the rights had reverted back to the authors and composers of the Broadway play, and it hadn't been seen in theaters in decades and hadn't been part of the package of MCA Universal old Paramount films that would be that you'd see at two in the morning on a local station. Animal Crackers was like this lost masterpiece where Groucho played Captain Spaulding and he shot an elephant in his pajamas and all that. And uh, there, there were lines from that, and that was wonderful for friends and for me because we figured that was as close as we were going to get to being able to experience animal crackers and uh, that turned out not to be the case yes, further yes. down in my my life story but that's the short answer to your question well well assuming you asked one yes yes uh the um i imagine being able to see you know now nowadays people get into a director or an actor or something they can just go consume the entire catalog but back then really yeah. it being a hunt you know, I'm sure it left, uh, do you think it left a bigger impression on you than it would have if you'd have been 19 now and streamed all the Marx Brothers movies, you know? Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe in those hungry years where you have to fight to earn the right to see the movie. Now you mention a movie to someone and they take out their iPhone and punch up a few buttons and they can be watching it in the palm of their hand, which was something out of you know, Flash Gordon back in the early 70s, the idea that you'd have these movies in your pocket. Right. Um, but now it's all, it's taken for granted. And uh, I was wa I was watching TCM the other night and they had one of their little promos where all the hosts sit together and tell each other why they're each fabulous and know everything. <laughs> yes. And one of them mentioned uh, who was the first director that you became aware of and i figured they would all say hitchcock because he was in his films and he had the tv show and he's so well known you know they weren't going to say walter wanger or something <laughs> like right. that so so i think mankiewicz said hitchcock and i thought well this is going to get and then one of the others said oh definitely i'd have to say john hughes and i suddenly felt <laughs> very very old <laughs> that the first director he became aware of was someone who in my mind's eye even though he's gone now was a fairly recent addition to the list of famous directors that i would have thought that john ford and frank capra and leo mccary and hitchcock and all those people that i grew up and, of course, I wasn't seeing their films first run. I was seeing them when they were decades old. So it wasn't like I'm from the Depression. 
Um, but no, the times, they haven't changed, as Mr. Dillon taught us. And so, yeah, today it's a whole bit. People think classic films are like Star Wars and E.T. and Titanic. And uh, it's it's a mixed bag in terms of how accessible the films are. Going back to your question about whether you appreciate them more if it's harder for you to see them, because there's so much content out there now it, it would be easy for these classics to get lost in the crowd, even though it's exponentially easier to see them. It's a like a double-edged sword. Right, right. As I say, you can just you can just punch it up on your machine and watch it, or go to YouTube and catch up with some early sound film that you'd only heard about, and there's a whole print of it. But who under I'll be generous. Who under fifty? feels like doing that and you hear the arguments about oh if it's not in color my kids won't watch it right and i just feel like well then it's their loss tough shit you know i suppose you want to colorize ansel adams yosemite pictures too because they're only in black and white so yeah it's yeah uh getting back to animal crackers okay now this is you are part of mark's brother's history now now oh dear Now I feel old again, like when the guy said John Hughes. Uh, To me, okay, so let's talk about how you and Groucho end up, how you end up making contact with your hero. Um, Yeah. Speaking of how Aminal Crackers was this, you know, unseen film for decades, how did this whole process start uh, of you uh, trying to to get this back into the theaters? I know you went and saw a bootleg print of it, before yeah but uh tell us a little yeah. bit about this in in december <clears throat> excuse me in <clears throat> excuse me again in december of 73 uh we heard that there was a print of animal crackers playing at an old theater in anaheim and this was actually during what was at the time uh a gas shortage and it was kind of unusual to blow much of a tank of gas driving down to Anaheim just to see this Marx Brothers movie, but all of my friends were game and wanted to go. And we knew that this was the unseen film, and it was our chance to finally see it. And it was horrible. It was a doopy, doopy copy of a copy of a copy, and everything was so murky, particularly frustrating in the scenes that take place in the dark, which on top, I mean, it might have just just as well have been the screen. Um, but the point was we were seeing animal crackers and it was electrifying because we could at least hear the dialogue and get a general sense of what these ghost-like figures moving about in front of our eyes were doing. And in my naivete, I thought, I wonder if Groucho knows that it's visible here. Maybe he hasn't seen it in decades. And I thought... I knew his phone number wasn't in the Beverly Hills phone book because I had checked once, but I also had realized that Harry Ruby's phone number was, and that Harry Ruby was one of Groucho's oldest friends. He was uh, a composer and also screenwriter and worked on Animal Crackers and uh, early Paramount films. And I thought, 
maybe if I tell Harry Ruby, he'll he'll tell Groucho. And I called, and a nurse answered. <clears throat> and if a nurse hadn't answered, none of what happened afterwards would happen, because she wrote my phone number down. Nice. And a short while later, I got a call from Harry Ruby, which at the time was the most exciting person I'd ever talked to because, oh, my God, it's someone who's known Groucho since the 20s and is one of his best friends. And I told him about Animal Crackers playing, and I asked him a few questions. And he said, well, I'll be sure and tell Grouch about it. And I thought, oh, my God, because I called him. He's going to tell the man himself <laughs> And then on New Year's Day of 74, I got a phone call from a woman named Erin Fleming. And I knew who she was because, as I say, I was devouring anything in, in book form or in magazines or newspaper articles about Groucho. And I knew that she was the youngish actress who was kind of in charge of Groucho's career, his companion and scene with him and all that. And she said that Harry Ruby had given her my name and number. And she wanted to know, how were they able to show it? It's illegal for them to be able to show it. They had no right, as if I put them up to it or had any knowledge of the circumstances under which they got right. a print of Animal Cracker. Um, so she was upset which was a, a fine introduction to her. <laughs> and then she was, they were going to be leaving uh, because they were going to see Sleeper, Woody Allen's film. Um, but, and she wanted to, but she wanted to reconnect, and she, she was sort of thinking out loud and thinking that she wanted to take me with her to Universal to Sid Sheinberg's office, he was the president of Universal, as like exhibit A of a young man that would drive all the way to Anaheim to see Animal Crackers, because she and Groucho had been trying to get it reissued for a couple years, and Universal didn't think it was worth spending any money to re-release an old black-and-white Marx Brothers movie. Um, and then in between then and the next time I talked to her, I was talking to some friends and they said instead of just you going at this one person why don't you start a petition drive uh and get signatures to show that a lot of people want to see this and i was a, a history student at ucla at the time so i formed an organization <laughs> called the committee for the re-release of animal crackers and we had a table on bruin walk which is the main entrance slopes up to where all the buildings are and thousands of students walk to and fro on it every day. So we had our table next to, you know, ending the war and gay rights and legalized marijuana and all these things that in some cases are still controversial issues. And then there was this table of students who wanted to get a Marx Brothers movie re-released. And the students were so wary of signing it. They were, you know, this was like around the time of of Watergate and all that. And they were thinking, is the government going to get a copy of this? And are they going to find out our Social Security number? Do you have to be a registered voter? And I was like, no, if you just like to see. So we gathered all sorts of names and, and uh, 
we were the envy of the other groups because people were wary about signing their controversial ones, but they finally decided that, okay, yes, we'd like to see a Marx Brothers movie. And in the meantime, I arranged with Aaron Fleming for Groucho to come to UCLA to help publicize our crusade. And I couldn't believe that I was actually going to meet him. I said, Groucho, I'm very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. (laughs) And Aaron Fleming said, this is Steve Stolier. He's the one who is trying to get animal crackers out again. And Groucho said, well, did you get it? And I said, not not yet, but we're working on it. And he said, you better or I'll fire you. <laughs> and I said, I didn't even realize I was working for you. How, how much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. <laughs> and And we were off and running. And that was my introduction. And there we were sitting side by side as hundreds of students pressed, crushed in, trying to hear his his thin, papery voice, because he was in his 80s and had had health problems and uh, wasn't able to speak really loudly. And then all these news people are asking us questions and sticking microphones in our face. And I'm just sitting there looking at him thinking, I don't believe this is really happening. And um, even though he had slowed down, there was still... Uh, more than vestiges of his wit that stayed with him really till the end. I remember one one reporter said, Mr. Marks, what is the purpose of your appearance here today? I expect to get lunch. <laughs> no, but I mean, besides that, I may get dinner. <laughs> and uh, so there was silliness as well. And Universal finally relented and and cleared the rights and... They decided they would run Animal Crackers in New York and in Westwood, two theaters, uh, basically to get us off their backs and, like, humor us, because they had no faith in its any kind of box office clout. And we ended up breaking the box office record at the UA Westwood that had been set by the French Connection several years earlier. And it was enormously gratifying to be wandering around in Westwood and look at the UA Westwood and see that there was a line down the block of all these young guys and gals and blue jeans and T-shirts and tennis shoes waiting to pay money to see Animal Crackers because we knew there would be a big interest in it, but Universal was too focused on important films like Airport 75. (laughs) Uh, and then the summer of 74, I had two summer jobs fall through for which I remained eternally grateful. And my dad was saying, I don't want you sitting on your fanny all summer. Go get a job. I go, uh, you know, I saw a help wanted sign at the Goodyear tire shop, uh, Taco Bell. And I thought, I don't want to work at a tire store or give people tacos. That's a and I sort of with my back against the wall, I thought, well, before I lower myself to that, I need to f- at least ask. So I called Aaron Fleming and I said, is there anything at all that you think I could possibly 
be helpful with? And she said, well, actually, I used to be Groucho's secretary, but now I'm his manager. And there's no one to take care of all the fan mail, which has really gotten out of hand lately. And we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers to organize all of Groucho's memorabilia, which is going to be donated to the Smithsonian. And in my imagination, it was like a Tex Avery cartoon where I show up on the doorstep knocking on the door while she's still on the phone (laughs) explaining the job. It felt like that, but it wasn't quite like that. And I wasn't even sure if it meant working at his house. I initially thought it would be an office somewhere and that maybe once or twice a month he'd come in to sign checks or pick stuff up. She said, oh, no, dear, there's a a room there that you can use for your office and you can make your own hours. And I thought, and they're paying me money to do this, to go to Groucho's house in Beverly Hills every day initially because it was the summer and I couldn't think of any reason to want to take a day off from a dream job and immerse myself in that atmosphere and spend quality time with my idol, getting to know him uh, as Groucho and as someone who's personal friends with George Gershwin and W.C. Fields and James Thurber and all these mythic figures. And then as a as a man from 1890, someone whose first-hand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which was mind-blowing. And I was always welcome at the, at the lunch table. There wasn't a sense of, you know, the help has to eat in the kitchen. So no matter who was coming over for lunch, um, or if no one was coming over for lunch, I was welcome to eat with Groucho and Aaron or Groucho and a nurse or just Groucho or George Burns and Jack Lemon and Steve Allen and Hal Cantor and all of these extraordinary guests. And I listened a lot, but also participated and just couldn't believe my good fortune. And I never took it for granted. Um, Groucho would have health setbacks along the way, and I would think, that's it, that's it. He's fading out. It's over. The coach is turning back into a pumpkin and mice. I'll cherish these few weeks or months I had. And it ended up turning into three, the last three years of Groucho's life as other members of the household were hired and fired by Aaron, who ruled with just an axe. Uh, I somehow managed to stay on what passed for her good side and uh, managed to stick it out all that time. You know, the the downside was getting close to my hero as he's fading out. I mean, it meant that I now had an emotional attachment that I didn't have when I was watching his movies and reading about him and reading the Groucho letters and laughing. Now I was up close and personal and he was, he, it was more than an employer-employee relationship. I won't go so far as to say we were friends. There's a great temptation for people to inflate their importance when no one's around to say, no, you're wrong. But I figure the truth is interesting enough, so I don't see the need to embellish it. But I would say that he was fond of me like an uncle and a nephew, <clears throat> 
and it meant a lot to me that he knew that I was into the same stuff, that it wasn't just some hippie freak that liked rock and roll and didn't care about anything before 1960, but that I cared about Gershwin and Irving Berlin and and uh, the Algonquin Round Table. One time he called me into his room and he peeled off a 20 and he said, run down to Tower Records, you know what I like. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's so delicious that he knows that I know what he likes. So it was a great it was great to get to know him, but bittersweet watching this this light slowly dimming, and then it, of course dealing with the mercurial Aaron Fleming who could fly into rages. One day she could bend over backwards to do to help you out and just be super nice and helpful, and the next day the walls are shaking from her screaming and slamming the door and yelling. And um, people at the time, friends of mine had said, why do you put up with that? And it's like, I, I don't want to miss anything. I, I, I could say I don't deserve to be in a, a household where there's this kind of ongoing stress going on, but it's still the good stuff far outweighed the negative. And I also felt like whatever I could do to help Groucho uh, would be my pleasure. I mean, truly a labor of love. So I wasn't going to just say, I don't, I don't need this. Um, I, I needed the eggs, I guess, is to quote Annie Hall. Right. And so that was how I got there and just never took it for granted. Well, early on, um, you mentioned, you know, early on your working relation there, relationship with Groucho there, he snapped at you. Um, this must have been an emotionally just so loaded of a situation, to say the least, for you. Um, yeah. But uh, you got well, used to it. And, 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 and what was Groucho like day to uh, day? Was he cranky or was he a victim of, of circumstance? Um, well, there's a reason he was named Groucho. I mean, his real name was Julius, but it weren't for nothing that his stage name and that the name that appeared at the bottom of my check each week was Groucho. Um, he did, you know, he was, I think his mother's Yiddish nickname for him was Der Dunkel, which means the dark one of her sons of her five wow. sons he was the dark one the brooding one the the ruminating thinking one um whereas harpo was just sort of sweet and innocent and didn't let things get to him and chico spent his time womanizing and being a compulsive gambler and living life to its fullest by running through his money all the time and being bailed out by his more successful or more frugal brothers. Um, you know, Groucho was, he was thrice divorced and it seemed like each, each marriage he, well, what, according to Groucho, he said, uh, I, I married my wives for their looks. They had nothing upstairs except another man from time to time. <laughs> uh, and it's true. All of his wives were beautiful 
but I think they were all, it was sort of a setup for disappointment at some point because they were younger and wanted to do things, have parties and play games and stuff. And Groucho wanted to listen to Gilbert and Sullivan and talk about politics and uh, compare notes on books he and his friends had read. And they were, the wives were kind of bored by that. Um, and so all of those, all his marriages ended in divorce as opposed to Harpo, who married uh, the actress uh, Susan Fleming, yes, who yes. Old, old movie buffs may remember as the female lead in W.C. Fields' Million Dollar Legs, playing Angela, the love interest. Um, and then younger viewers would remember as the old lady in Titanic that, that throws the necklace into the water. No, that wait, I'm sorry. That was Gloria was Stewart. Sheet, I'm confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, but uh, no, Susan Fleming married Harpo in 36 and they stayed married till he died in 64. Yeah. But Gloria, yeah, Gloria Stewart was Gloria Sheikman, the wife of one of Groucho's oldest friends. And I got to meet her there and she was in the invisible man in the old dark house and and, uh, gold diggers of 35. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it was a remarkable um, atmosphere. Well, well, that's uh, uh, go on. I'm sorry. Oh, well, uh, I wanted to stay on Groucho's good side because he, it meant so much to me. And I tried, I sort, I sort of learned how to, when to back off and when I could press for something, but I knew it, but it couldn't be a perfect record being there all the time for three years. And also with the elderly, it was, it's common for them to have good days and bad days, days when they're tranquil days, when they're irritable, something can be fine four days in a row. And all of a sudden on the fifth day, it's upsetting. So in the case of him snapping at me, um, I had asked Aaron if there was a radio I could have in my office there so I could at least listen to music while I was working. And she said, sure. And she brought in this little portable radio. And I had had it for, I think, weeks. It was always on. Groucho would come into my office and ask me something or tell me something or hand me something and it was and then one day i i went into the bathroom and when i came out groucho was standing at the door holding the radio and he said what makes you think you can borrow my radio and i said well aaron said it would be okay well this isn't aaron's radio this is my radio and i said all right i'm sorry and I, and I just felt terrible. I had done nothing wrong, but it didn't matter. Um, my hero was snapping at me. And I think later that afternoon, Groucho came into my office with the radio and said, you can borrow my radio if you want. Um, but he just felt like he had to, you know, it, it didn't make sense, but that's what happens when someone's in their mid-80s and, and is you know, fighting frailty and all that. It's something that can be fine, A, B, C, D, all of a sudden, E, it's it's a problem, and then tranquil after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, you, I want to go back to, okay, Groucho's dinner table, lunch table, wherever y'all, you, you guys were, 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 you were meeting these people. And I mean, I am fascinated with Los Angeles in the mid 70s. You know, you've got all the rock clubs going, you got the Rainbow Bar and Grill go, opening up. Right, right. And you're up in the hills. John Lennon's, John Lennon's Lost Weekend. Absolutely. And you've got, uh, you've got, uh, you're up in the hills meeting, you know, George Burns, Mae West, and, and S.J. Perlman. Um, yes. Let's, let's start with, with George Burns. I actually met him when I was a child. He came through my hometown, and my mother took me down there. Oh, neat. And he was just like he was in the movies. Um, I've always heard Burns was incredibly blue off stage. Did your experience with him provide any evidence of that? <laughs> Uh, my experience didn't, but a friend of mine uh, was interviewing him, and he mentioned my friend mentioned some actress from vaudeville, and he he asked Burns if he knew her, and Burns said, "I knew her, but I never fucked her." <laughs> that was just. <laughs> uh, so I didn't have that experience. The, the closest it came to being at all uh, suggestive was after lunch, uh, Burns, Groucho had stopped smoking cigars before I got the job, and even though that was his trademark, I was very grateful, because I've never been able to stand the aroma of cigars, and it was just as well that for health purposes, he wasn't smoking them anymore. However, a great many of his friends and peers still smoked them, so it was a frequent, frequent aroma there. So after lunch, by the way, when Burns showed up, I was nervous because I fully appreciated who he was, even though this was before the Sunshine Boys and that whole renaissance right. that led to Oh God and all those late movies he did. I still knew him as half of Burns and Allen and the Paramount films and the radio shows and the TV show. So I was nervous when the doorbell rang, but I opened it up and he's standing there smiling and he says, hi, you want to live a long time? Become an actor. You live to be an old man like Groucho and me. Okay, let's see. And we went in and ate. And so afterwards he took out a cigar and he pushed it into this yellow plastic holder. And he said, I never smoke expensive cigars. All I care about is if they fit the holder. Now, Milton Berle pays $2 a piece for his cigars. If I paid that much, I'd go to bed with it before I'd smoke it. <laughs> so that was, uh, I, that I was mean, George. Just, just having that gold every day, just, just you know, and, and being able to meet somebody like S.J. Perlman. I, I mean, what was that like? Well, again, I was very nervous because I had thought, uh, for, for those who uh, can't place the name, S.J. Sidney Joseph Perelman was one of the premier humorists of the 20th century, up there with James Thurber and Robert Benchley and all those brilliant and funny, you know, Dorothy Parker and George Kaufman and those guys. And he was also a screenwriter, usually in partnership with other people. But his short, humorous prose filled about 20 books. He was, you know, he wrote for The New Yorker from the 20s on and also for other 
magazines, Judge and Punch and Holiday, and uh, he would write books about his trips around the world, and Al Hirschfeld would illustrate them. Um, he won an Oscar, speaking of Around the World, he won an Oscar for co-writing Around the World in 80 Days, the That's best right. picture of 58 or whatever it was. But he also uh, was one of the writers on Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. And there had been a, a sort of, not an estrangement, but a, a bit of a chill between Groucho and Perelman over the years. And it was understandable on both their parts, because on the one hand, Perelman had achieved greatness on his own, as I say, one of the premier humorists of the 20th century, huge influence on Woody Allen as his favorite humorist. And um, when he'd be interviewed, all people wanted to know was, what was it like writing for the Marx Brothers? Is Groucho as funny off camera as he is on camera? What were some of the funny things that happened when you work for the Marx Brothers? And he resented being relegated to just a gag writer when he had accomplished so much more. And then the flip side was Groucho. By the time Perelman worked on Monkey Business, Groucho had already been in uh, Alsatia's Coconuts and Animal Crackers on Broadway, and then the Coconuts and Animal Crackers films, and his character was pretty established. But for some reason, some intellectuals would write articles saying that Perelman basically created the Groucho persona oh, that we're used to seeing on screen. And Groucho thought, I'll be damned if you're going to give Sid Perelman credit for that. Well, I was doing that years before he came on board. So you had these two people with substantial and well-deserved egos. And that was, you know, there's even a book called about Perelman called Don't Mention the Marx Brothers. <laughs> so, um, and I also got the impression that he was something of a misanthrope, that, that he just didn't suffer fools or, mo or most people gladly. And so I wasn't eager to meet him because um, I was afraid that I would just be met with disdain or dismissal or something. So I didn't expect to meet him. He was coming to dinner at Groucho's one night, on actually on his way back from one of his around-the-world jaunts. And Aaron said to me, don't you want to meet Sid? And I said, oh, I, I'm hardly dressed for it. And she said, oh, he won't mind. Now, I was in faded blue jeans, a T-shirt, and not new tennis shoes, which was my standard attire at the time. And I thought, well, yeah, I would really love to meet him. Are you sure? <clears throat> so he shows up as one of the most natally attired dapper men in an expensive three-piece suit. He's with a woman who's wearing a floor-length mink coat and diamond necklace <laughs> and and uh, bracelet, and uh, character actor Andrew Duggan, who had been in a play that Perelman had written, and Duggan was in essentially a tuxedo. God. And here I am <laughs> saying, Mr. Perelman, it's such an honor to meet you. And I'm picturing him thinking, yeah, I can tell uh, you hippie freak you. But um, so, I, you know, after a perfunctory hello, I just sort of 
faded into the background to observe, which was a, a frequent stance of mine. And um, it was a very pleasant dinner. I mean, there wasn't any trace of bitterness. Uh, at the end, Perelman took out a cigarette, and he said, Groucho, do you mind if I smoke? And Groucho said, I don't care if you burn. <laughs> and Perelman said, that was good. Now let's try it for timing. Uh, and I thought, this is so cool. This is what it must have been like on the set of Monkey Business. And afterwards, we adjourned to the living room. And the other guests were asking about things that Perelman had written for Groucho, which in this case made sense. It wasn't like, is that all you know me for? Because they knew him. For, for his greatness, not just as a gag writer, but it made sense that in Groucho's living room you would ask. So one of the people said, oh, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. Wasn't that one of yours, Sid? I, no, I didn't write that. That was a, from another show. Um, oh, vaccinated with a photograph needle. Didn't you come up with that one, Sid? Uh, no, that wasn't one of mine. And then I said, the professor is waxing Roth. <laughs> and everyone turned and looked at me. And Perelman said, yes, that was one of mine. Oh. And I thought, oh, oh, I get points for that. <laughs> and then uh, later on, I went back into my office to do some more work. And Perelman came shuffling down the hall to go to the bathroom. So out of, you know, I had organized all of Groucho's the letters and fo photos and different drafts of scripts. And Groucho had an early draft of Horse Feathers um, that was very different from how it ended up. And Perelman is on the front cover as one of the writers. So on his way back from taking a leak, I said, Mr. Perelman, have you seen this lately? And I handed it to him, and he smiled and started thumbing through it and said, oh, no, I haven't. By the way, this is a dead-on S.J. Perelman impression <laughs> that – that children, I can't go to the store without children stopping me and saying, Do your S.J. Perelman impression is so good. I can't, if I close my eyes, it's like S.J. Perelman is standing. Anyway, and we started talking. And I started, I mentioned the Algonquin Roundtable and how Benchley was one of my favorites. And he was saying, Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, we were good friends. I knew him quite well. And uh, I, was, I mentioned one of my favorite Benchley pieces about a Christmas pageant where the principal comes out uh, ducking his knees and patting his pillow to denote joviality and all this stuff. Mr. Creamer and, and Perelman said, oh, yes, Mr. Creamer. He often wrote about a character named Mr. Creamer. And he asked me what I was interested in, and I said writing, probably for television. And he he tried to dissuade me from that because <clears throat> he felt, and rightly so, that if you if you write a play, if you write for the theater, <clears throat> there's less interference from studio heads or networks or sponsors or the people that interfere in television and in films, but it's pure that the theater is more the writer's venue. Film is the director's and TV is the producer's. And he wanted to try to push me in that direction. Um, and I just, I stopped and pulled back from myself and thought, I am talking with him about the Algonquin Roundtable and my career 
and all of this, <clears throat> I am engaging him in conversation for about 15 minutes, and I start to hear, where's Sid? You think he's okay? Was he feeling all right? I don't know. I haven't seen him. So he had to go back and and uh, <clears throat> and join the rest of the group. But I said, if I had a book of yours, would it be possible to have you sign it? And he said, yes, I'm staying at the Chateau Marmont. And uh, if you leave it at the front desk, uh, it will get to me, and I'll be happy to sign it for you. So the next day, I went to the, a bookstore. You remember bookstores. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I picked up a copy of what was then his latest collection of short humorous pieces called Vinegar Puss and a cover letter and a ba paper bag. And I left it at the front desk saying, you know, with great flourish, this is for Mr. Perelman. Oh, yes, we'll see that he gets it. And the, and the next day I got a phone call from the front desk saying it's available for pickup. So I hightailed it over the hill from the valley into the West Hollywood. <clears throat> and I picked, I picked up the, the bag and I slid it out and I opened it up and it said for Steve Stolier with very cordial wishes for his ultimate success as a writer, oh. S.J. Perelman. And it's just one of many prizes that I have. I think if my place were ever on fire, I would just have to go up with the flames because <laughs> to try to look around and figure, you know, people say, what would you grab if you, and, you know, I've been through a pretty severe earthquake, um, and uh, it becomes very difficult to prioritize. But, man, that meant the world to me. And then I came, <clears throat> actually, the night that, that I had dinner with Perelman and Groucho, I came home, and I was in my dorm room, and I'm thinking, I have to tell someone. I have to share this with someone. I get, who is going to understand? Who's going to know who Perelman is? Who am I going to? And I thought, ah, Dad, finally, finally I can, I can say something, and Dad will be proud of what I did. He'll get it, and he'll be proud of his son, finally, my eternal quest for I'm proud of you, son. So I called him up and I said, I have just had dinner with Groucho Marx and S.J. Perelman. And Dad said, are you neglecting your studies? <laughs> just hopped the balloon as if he'd been waiting, waiting with a sharp needle to pop the balloon. So in fact, when I wrote Raised Eyebrows, my years inside Groucho's house, it was several years after my dad had passed away. But I still dedicated it to Dad, who worried that I was neglecting my studies. Right. Because, of course, in the game of life, those were my studies. They mattered a lot more than the history of India and, and uh, the history of Egypt and other courses that I was taking. I was getting a master's course in you know, life upon the wicked stage and show business, and, which ended up having me shift my major from history to motion picture television because I couldn't deny any longer that I really loved that atmosphere and felt drawn to it. Yeah. Um, but Dad was just looking at it coldly in terms of you go to college, you study things, you, you see the professor, you write papers, you graduate with a diploma, and you get a job based on your diploma. So it was just very peripheral that I had just accomplished that. 
So that was kind of emblematic of my eternal quest for the pat on the head. Right, right. Well, and, and I think it's an interesting dichotomy. I, I want to get back to uh, Aaron eventually. Um, but, but one thing about Aaron's friends, you're, you were more hanging out with Groucho's friends, and then Aaron had her friends, Elliot Gould, Bob yeah. Court. Um, yeah, you talked about Hollywood in the 70s, and that was – that was something that became very evident from uh, working at Groucho's was that I was innately drawn to his circle, the older guys, especially the writers, uh, Nat Perrin and Maury Riskind and Irving Brecker and Hal Cantor. Um, these were the people I felt comfortable with and wanted to hear their stories. Aaron Fleming had this strange set of quirky friends who, I don't know, it was almost like she had a sort of uh, bent maternal hold over them. One of them was Bud Court, who really was quite childlike uh, in many ways. And um, Elliot Gould leaned on her for certain things, and Sally Kellerman. I didn't dislike any of them. I liked them all. But I didn't. They were strange. I know that some of them had been enhanced by uh, pharmaceuticals yes. <laughs> since this was after the seventies. But I was much more at home with the Alta Cockers, as they say, at the lunch table than I was. Even though the people that were Aaron's friends were technically hotter, that didn't impress me as much as. Um, meeting one of the people from the golden age absolutely well let's let's jump to some uh, happier memories you have a very unique relationship with uh zeppo marks um i like many i mean i, I think he really added something special to the brothers and those yeah. films yeah um he didn't really get a chance to shine i mean he's sort of you know he's like a joke amongst old movie buffs like you know just, he was just kind of wooden and had no personality and was disposable. But, you know, once he's subtracted from the equation and you have to put up with with Kenny Baker <laughs> singing two blind laws, and, you know, it's pretty nauseating, some of the romantic leads. You, you miss whatever he did bring. And, the, you know, the truth is he, he entered the act very late in the game relatively, because the straight man in vaudeville was Gummo, and right. in 1918, Gummo left to, to help fight World War One, and they needed someone else so that it would still be the four Marx Brothers. So 17-year-old Zeppo was added. But by this time, much of Groucho, Harpo, and Chico's characters were were form. They might have still been a little embryonic, but they were solidifying. And there really wasn't all that much for the romantic lead to do. They sang, they were the straight man, but there wasn't all that much. So even though Zeppo had potential, it was never tapped because that wasn't the part he was supposed to play. And he never really enjoyed he enjoyed the perks but he didn't really feel comfortable 
being a movie star. And in fact, he left the act after Duck Soup, after the Paramount contract was up. And he became a very successful agent uh, representing such uh, forgotten bit players as um, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and um, Lana Turner and Lucille Ball and uh, Robert Taylor. So he did really well. He was a very respected and very successful agent uh, and wasn't happy in the spotlight. In uh, there's something I left out, which which wasn't pertinent before, but I'll mention it now. The first time I saw Groucho was when he was doing his one man show in L.A. And I went to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and saw him for the first time, which was electrifying, even though it was disappointing because I hadn't realized how old and frail he had gotten. But it was I knew then that that's the closest I would ever get to Groucho. And then after the show in the parking uh, garage, I spotted Zeppo and some young blonde. And I recognized Zeppo again because I devoured anything related to the Marx Brothers. I knew what he looked like now. And there was sort of no missing that equestrian profile of his, it's just the forehead and the nose, just this straight diagonal line. So I thought, well, if I'm never going to meet Groucho, I'm going to meet a Marx brother. So I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy you in your films. And he said, you weren't enjoying me. You were enjoying my brothers. <laughs> and I thought, I'm so glad I took a moment to share my admiration for right. him so that he could admonish me that I was mistaken. But the next time I saw him, and of course I could never have dreamt during that brief exchange that our paths would ever cross again. Two years later, I was working for his brother in his brother's house. And uh, Zeppo and Gummo lived in Palm Springs and would come up from time to time to visit. And there was one night when Zeppo, Zeppo was coming up and Aaron, again, Aaron Fleming said, do, do you want to meet Zeppo? And I said, I would, but I have a date tonight. So... And Aaron said, bring her. And I thought, oh, I like this. Because I was dating someone who was extremely self-possessed and unflappable for 19. She was 19, I was 20. And I thought, this just might flap her unflappability. <laughs> so I picked her up, and she said, so where are we going? And I said, you'll see. And then as I turned on to Sunset near where Groucho lived, she said, where are we going? I said, it's a little out of the way place. And she said, oh, I don't want to do this. And I said, well, you're going to do it. So we arrived, and Zeppo was quite taken with Linda. Uh, she had blonde hair and blue eyes and was very attractive, but also smart. And as I say, kind of mature beyond her years. So he, he kind of took a liking to her. He said, you know, Steve, you, you and Linda ought to visit me in Palm Springs sometime. And I said, I don't know. I, I was there when I was about eight and it was just sweltering. And he said, well, when were you there in the summer? And I said, yeah. 
He said, well, you know, Steve, it's cold in Alaska during the winter, too. Uh, he he did he had a great charisma that didn't show on camera. When he walked into a room, he seemed much younger than his 74 years. Um, he really had a great vitality. He was recently divorced from Barbara Marks, who then became Barbara Sinatra. She threw him over for Sinatra. Wow. And... Um, he was just a lot of fun. And then a few months later, uh, she and I broke up and I had a couple of original photographs that I thought would be great if Zeppo could sign them. So I sent the photos to him with a cover letter saying, uh, Linda and I have split up. Do you, I know you've been around the block a few times. Do you have any advice for the lovelorn? And a couple of days later, I get a call at night in my dorm room. Steve, is Zeppo Marks? Is this a bad time? <laughs> uh, no. Listen, uh, I got your letter and uh, photos. God, I was good looking back then. Uh, look, I don't want to step on your toes. I'm thinking, where is this going? But do you think that Linda would go out with me? And I thought, what? Uh, oh. I, I'm writing him, and he's hitting on what? The, and I said, well, I, 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 she, she kind of got a kick out of you, I can, because uh, now if this is at all awkward or uncomfortable for you, uh, then forget that I asked. Uh, that the last thing I would want to do is inconvenience you. No, no, no. Uh, I, I'll tell you what. I'll, uh, I'll ask her. And, uh, and we'll go from there. Okay, because if it's... No, 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 no. So I saw her on campus, and I told her about it, and she kind of had got that same kind of combination, weirded out, but a kick out of it, and thought, you know, just for the experience. So she said, okay. So they went out once. Uh, he took her to dinner in San Diego and then to attend a high ally game in Tijuana, <laughs> which I guess was Zeppo's uh, standard first date. You take him to dinner in San Diego and then that high ally game in Tijuana, and then they're putty in your hands, you know. <laughs> Not to mention the 55-year age difference, I think. Did you say he was 74 yes. at the time? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, it was a... Uh, a May, December of the following year, Roman. Um, but, you know, the next time I saw him, he said, I want to tell you, Steve, I never even kissed a goodnight. You, you should know that. And she was very nice, but all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus, and she said, Zeppa was really nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, this is really interesting. <laughs> but after that, whenever Zeppa would be up at a party at Groucho's, he would always make a point of introducing me, saying, and this is Steve. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with him than I did. <laughs> that was my full introduction. So he really, I, you know, I just got such a kick out of him. And, and of course, in the surroundings of his brother's house and with an attractive date, uh, his response to me was 180 degrees from the brusque brush-off I got at the Dorothy Chandler parking garage. But 
So, yeah, but now I have the distinction of saying Zeppo Marx and I dated the same girl. She was 19, I was 20, and he was 74. <laughs> that is and I got, priceless. And I got to meet Gummo. I mean, I, I met three of the five Marx brothers, and it's not the three that most people would want to meet, but Harpo and Chico had died in the early 60s, and I couldn't meet them. Uh, I didn't have anything for Gummo to sign when he came up with Zeppo for dinner. Uh, so I just got a, a three by five card and had him autograph it. And he said, you know, if if my signature were at the bottom of a check, this might actually be worth something. <laughs> what was he like? Gummo. What was what was was it just was he funny? Was he Gummo Gummo Gummo's he he bore a resemblance to Chico. He had those kind of sad eyes. His voice was a little like Groucho's. He was short and kind of quiet and mild-mannered. He he didn't fight for the spotlight. Uh, Zeppo liked to dominate the conversation, and Groucho liked to dominate the conversation. Gummo was much more uh, toned down than the other two, but he was nice, and there was that humor underlying. You know, and when he and... Well, let me see. Groucho had a very young, attractive, blonde cook named Robin, tall and thin. And uh, Zeppo came out of the kitchen and he sat down at the table and he said, uh, Robin said she'd marry me, but I don't know. I think maybe she, I don't know. And and uh, Aaron said, what part of her do you want? And Zeppo said, I'll take as high up as I can reach. And then Gummo said, what do you want with her feet? <laughs> uh, so which is, was kind of a wonderfully surreal topper to Zeppo saying, I'll take as high up as I can reach. So, And I thought, what must it have been like when all five brothers were at the table at the height of their powers? Because just these three was such a kick even in their you know aging and slowed shape right right uh, but zeppo zeppo seemed to be like he was in his mid or late 50s he didn't seem early 70s at all and uh i was surprised that he died he died in 1979 two years after groucho died because he smoked a lot and got lung cancer and died but i really thought he would last a lot longer because there was such vitality to him in the mid-70s, but he, none of the brothers saw 1980. They were all gone by the late 70s. That's, that's amazing. You know, when you, and, and I was watching, I think it was Monkey Business the other night, and um, there's a moment when him and Groucho are, you know, interacting, and they're close together, and I've always heard that he, he filled in for Groucho in the vaudeville days one night. Um, one night. But I could notice there was an ease of he, he had a very, he had this ease with himself, and he seemed cool like Groucho was in a way, and you could I could almost see it there for a split second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Monkey Business is his most substantial role, followed fairly closely by Horse Feathers. Those are the only two in which he really has a, a, a substantial role plot-wise, although plot was never a strong point in the Paramount films like it was in the later films. 
Um, but yeah, he did have that personality. But yeah, there was one time when um, it was shortly after Animal Crackers had finished its stage run, and the brothers they put together a sort of best of act and toured with that um, before they moved to California to work on monkey business. And a lot of people say it was during Animal Crackers that Zeppo subbed for him. It wasn't technically Animal Crackers. It was this this show that they had that included scenes from Animal Crackers and Coconut. And uh, Groucho had appendicitis one night and had to go to the hospital. And uh, because it was sudden and unexpected, um, there wasn't, you know, they didn't have... Uh, people ready to go on and uh, Zeppo was drafted into playing Captain Spaulding (laughs) and so he smeared the grease paint mustache and eyebrows and reportedly matched Groucho laugh for laugh he knew the part well enough he'd been you know playing it he'd been playing opposite it for years and when Groucho heard about that, he he apparently got well faster than, than they expected him to or than the doctors really wanted him to um, when he heard that. Uh, but, you know, they did all get along. You know, there was a teasing quality between them all. Groucho would say, uh, the way we tested jokes was if Zeppo laughed, we took it out. Um but that you know, it really wasn't true. They all had great senses of humor, and uh, it was just this amazing time for me. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. Well, you know, yeah. leading up to to the untimely passing of of Groucho, Aaron during this time kind of amps up with with her issues. Um, when did you know that Aaron Aaron Fleming was was just out of control? Uh, I think there were signs early on that I dismissed the same way that it's like sometimes if you meet someone and you don't know that they're an alcoholic and you figure, well, he had a couple drinks before dinner and he had wine with dinner and he had cognac after dinner. It doesn't seem like there's anything intrinsically wrong with that until you realize that it's a dependency and that it's every night and that breakfast is a six-pack of beer and that that sort of thing. And so sometimes your alarm doesn't go off, especially because I had no experience dealing with people with volatile personalities. I mean, there was never any yelling or slamming of doors in our household when I was growing up, we were very down to earth and low key. And I never had to deal with people with that were like slightly off. And in fact, Aaron was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic, which worsened in later years, but she wasn't really all there when I was there. And that was what was difficult was you have this aging legend and as he's getting weaker, he becomes more dependent on 
an unbalanced woman, which is a really, it's like, well, here's some nitro and here's some glycerin. What could happen? And it, it made it stressful and difficult. But even uh, even on Bruin Walk, she showed up on a warm day with a full-length fur coat, fox coat that Groucho had given her, which we thought, in addition to the fact that it isn't cold out, take a look at how everyone else is dressed uh, with the blue jeans and, you know, vests and all that, ponchos. And here you are in a full-length fur coat in the middle of the day. Um, but the, again, at the time, you just go, well, I guess she wanted to show off her fur coat. Um, and then there was a party at Groucho's, and there was the fireplace was going, and it was warm inside the living room. And Aaron said, oh, it's so hot in here, and then asked me to get some more logs for the fire. Uh, I remember when I, towards the end of Groucho's life, there was a very contentious fight between his son, Arthur, and his faction, and then Aaron Fleming, in terms of who should be responsible for Groucho. And I was pulled into giving a three-day deposition at an attorney's office in Century City. And I, in terms of talking about Aaron's volatility, I gave that example. I said, and she said, oh, it's so hot in here. Would you get some more logs for the fire? And after you give a deposition, they let you come in and read through it to see if there's anything you think they either got wrong or that you want to change that you might have misspoken. And I remember reading through the transcript and getting to that story and and it said, and Aaron said, oh, it's so cold in here. Would you get some logs for the fire? And I thought, I guess the stenographer <laughs> must have, she must have looked at what she wrote and thought, no, that can't be right. She wouldn't have said it's so hot in here, put logs on the fire. She must have said cold. And I had to draw a line through that and change it back to what it really was. Um, but she... Uh, she had really a really difficult time after he died and was in and out of psych units at hospitals and on lots of medication. She had run-ins with the law. She was sometimes homeless. Um, she she claimed was a, a, to be uh, Lawrence Olivier's daughter. She uh, when there are yeah. all kinds of just... Just, uh, yeah, she ran into Larry Gel, uh, writer Larry Gelbart's wife, who she knew socially, um, some years after Groucho died, and she mentioned the Pacific Design Center, and then said to Mrs. Pat Gelbart, uh, "It was designed by my father, but you knew that, of course, didn't you?" And Pat said, "No," and she said, "Well, you know who my father is? No, Lawrence Olivier, like." Duh! Anyone knows that. And it was, you know, or she went into the sheriff's office to complain about something, but she had a loaded magnum in her purse, so whatever her complaint was went by the wayside, and she was taken into custody for bringing a loaded gun into the sheriff, West Hollywood Sheriff's Department. She, you know, she was not in her right mind. 
she was sort of when she was on her medication, but then she would go off and she would see enemies everywhere. People were out to get her. Uh, they're spying on her. They're eavesdropping on her. Um, it, it was that was a real ch challenge. I mean, parts of that were evident during the Groucho years, and I had to deal with someone who. It's like there'd be something, and you'd think, "Oh God, when Aaron hears about this, she's going to throw a shit fit." And we'd tell her, and she would laugh it off and shrug it off as nothing. And then someone else would say or do something that we thought was totally innocuous, and she would be just become Cruella Deville. Um, that you couldn't predict anything except her unpredictability. So it was. Uh, it was a best of times, worst of times, but but the best far outweighed the the dark stuff, and I uh, wouldn't have traded those years for anything. Right, right, and and now just to, about Groucho. Changed my life. Yeah, yeah, Groucho passes away. Um, right, and uh, you know it really what you said the untimely. And it really wasn't. That was, you know, people said, how did you feel when he died? And I said, I don't know if you've had an elderly relative or friend who was in really ill health, and you reach that point where you think it's selfish of me to want them to stick around. What is their quality of life now? Absolutely. And I had had, there had been so many false alarms of Groucho. It's like, oh, he's back in the hospital. I bet this is it. And then a year would go by. But really, he had been unwinding and spiraling down and having, he broke his hip and was in a wheelchair and had had a stroke. And it, the quality of his life was, you know, at one point in a, in a flash of lucidity, he said, this is no way to live. Yeah. And, uh, so I was, it, 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 when it finally happened, I knew that it was now officially the end of this astonishing trip through the looking glass. And I was sad that there would be no more adventures. But, you know, he was, he was a very old 86 um, with hardening of the arteries and, you know, whatever all of that deli food and smoking did for years. And the fact that, you know, he was born in 1890, and so what What would have been the average lifespan of someone from 1890? Uh, it really was time, even though I hated admitting it to myself, because selfishly I just wanted it to keep going on and on. Right, right. Um, and, you know, one of the, I think, one thing with Groucho's relationship with you, one thing that came from this is uh, you got to, uh, you know, meet Dick Cavett and get to know and become friends with Dick Cavett. Um, yeah. I know afterwards. That, and I didn't, I didn't expect that either. Um, when I was in 74, one day Groucho came shuffling into my office with an advanced copy of Dick Cavett's book, Cavett. And he said, read this, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> and I thought, well, I... I'm not really a super fan of Cavett's. I sort of thought of him as like the thinking man's Johnny Carson. And I enjoyed him, but I wasn't like, I didn't make it a point to stay up to watch his show. But I thought, well, I better read this because Grouch is going to ask what I thought of it. And I, I don't want to say I didn't bother reading it. 
so I started reading it, and I so related to this guy. Um, just from the first page, just all this stuff, the similarities that we grew up in the Midwest, that we both uh, lost our mothers when we were young and had to deal with stepmothers. Uh, we were shy around girls. We were fascinated by the classic comedians of the 30s and 40s. And I thought, you know, I bet if I ever met this guy, we'd hit it off. But he's one of those New York snobs who went to Yale and lives in Manhattan, and I've never been to New York. And, uh, and uh, so I thought the twain would never meet. But um, after reading the book, he mentions that when he met Groucho, Groucho told him all sorts of things and stories and stuff, and he went home and scribbled notes that would remind him of the stories Groucho told. And in the book, Cabot says, there's a couple here that I no longer remember what they mean. And one of them was Harry Ruby Envelopes, and the other was George Kaufman and Carr. And I knew from working at Groucho's, I thought that I knew what those referred to. So I stole his address out of Groucho's black book. It was actually a little black book. And wrote a letter to Cabot saying, I work for Groucho and I read the thing and da-da-da-da. Here is what I think those stories are. And he wrote back and said, "You, Dear Steve, you were uncannily on the nose with your two guesses. Uh, must uh, uh, Leaving to go out of town for a while, write again, and I will answer again and better. Yours, Dick. And that was the beginning of a correspondence. And then he he really enjoyed having this pipeline into Groucho's, you know, all the intrigue that was going on with Aaron and Arthur Marks and how Groucho was doing. And then when Groucho died... I thought, well, I guess that's it for my connection to Dick Cavett because the pipeline is closed, and why would he stay in touch with me? And the weekend that Groucho died, Cavett called me, and he said, listen, I hope that just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. Wow. And I emptied the urine out of my shoes and thanked him. And, and so we, he, he really has, for a short man, he has loomed large in my life in a sort of big brotherly way, not, not in the Orwellian sense, um, giving advice and feedback on stuff. And in fact, Dick is the person that facilitated my taking the quantum leap from, leap from secretary to writer because after Groucho died, I became a production secretary at Universal. And one day I got a call from a woman in New York at HBO saying, Dick Cavett has a new show and he wants you to write for it. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, and I moved from L.A. to New York and spent two and a half marvelous years in Manhattan with many Cavett adventures and meeting people and laughing until we couldn't catch our breath. And, um, and then the work in New York dried up and I came back to LA because I had an offer to work on a show for a solid chunk of money. And I, it, it, it frustrated me because I really, 
you know, when I moved to New York, people would say, so how long do you think you're going to be there? How long is this for? And I said, you don't understand. I'm moving to New York. I am moving from Los Angeles, and now I will be a New York resident. And I hadn't intended returning, but it just worked out that lack of money in New York and a solid offer in L.A., I, I really had no choice. And so I kind of rolled back into the San Fernando Valley after my Manhattan adventure. But Cabin and I stayed friends, and uh, I did get to meet Woody Allen through Cabot while I was in New York. Uh, did you want to hear that oh, story? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, as with Perelman, uh, coincidentally, Woody Allen's idol, um, I was hesitant to meet Woody Allen because I had seen Stardust Memories and I thought he was showing contempt for the entire spectrum of his fans, the, the drooling ones and the intellect, pseudo-intellectuals. It's like no matter where you were on the spectrum, he didn't think much of you. Right. And as usual, I thought, I, I can't imagine my saying anything to him that he would think was worth his time listening to. So he and Cavett had been friends since the early 60s when Dick was a talent coordinator on Jack Parr's Tonight Show. And they were really good friends. As a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> when Groucho gave lent me the copy of Cavett's book, the dust jacket blurbs were from Groucho and Woody Allen on the Cabot book. So I didn't press him. He would say, oh, Woody and I went walking in Central Park the other day, or Woody and I went to, and it's like, I would, it was good enough just to hear the experience. Then one day I got a call from Cabot saying, listen, I just noticed Woody is shooting his new film around the corner from my place. <clears throat> so I thought if you came over here, we could just sort of happen on it and then you could meet him. And I said, and he won't mind? And he said, oh, I didn't say that. He may very well say, really, Dicky, I wish you hadn't. <laughs> and I thought, great, I'm already nervous about meeting him, and now you're saying I take no responsibility if he's upset about it. So we went into this kind of residential office building. It's kind of a blend of the two, like you have in New York, where there's doctor's offices, but also people living there. And we went up to the floor, and the elevator doors opened, and there was a production assistant with a clipboard and crew people standing around. And then, the, and this sounds like I'm embellishing this for dramatic effect, but I'm not. There was a long hallway, and at the end of the hallway, to the side, there was an open door from which a great light emanated, <laughs> like the Wizard of Oz. And that was the room that he was shooting in. So Cabot said, stay here, let me check this out. So I stayed at the end of the hall, and Cabot went walking down to where the light was and was just standing there looking in, and finally the light went out. And then Woody Allen and Mia Farrow walked out of the room. <clears throat> Woody was wearing a bowling shirt, and it was for a film that would be called Hannah and Her Sisters. And it was the scene 
that's a flashback where they're in a doctor's office and they learn that they can't have children. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> that was when they shot that scene. So I'm standing, looking, thinking, there's Dick Cavett and Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. Holy shit. <laughs> and then I see Cavett say something and, and point to me, and then all three of them turn and look at me, and I did that thing where you kind of look behind you and go, what, me? Are you me? And I went walking up, and and uh, Woody Allen said, uh, I'm Woody Allen, and this is Miss Farrow, and we're here on the set of our latest motion picture. Like it, like, like it was entertainment tonight or something. <laughs> and then the, the rest of the conversation was notable for how unnotable it was. It was just four people. I felt nervous initially and then felt comfortable. And it was just the four of us chatting about a variety of things. Cabot <clears throat> um, uh, and I had recently been to a screening of Zelig um, at which I met Diane Keaton. Really? Curious. Um, so we met, we mentioned seeing Zelig, and Woody told us that of the on-camera interviewers he filmed talking about their memories of Zelig in the 20s, he had wanted Greta Garbo to be one of the on-camera interviewees. And he said, I knew... It, it was a long shot. I knew she was retired. I knew she wouldn't do it, but I thought I might as well ask. And he said, I sent her a letter, and I said, you can choose the day and time. You can you can have complete control over it. I'll show it to you afterwards, and if there's anything about it you don't like, we won't use it. It would be totally up to you. And, and he said, I never heard back. And Cabot said, did you send it to 117 East 48th Street? And Woody said, yeah. And I said, you probably put the wrong apartment number on it. And he said, that was probably it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you said Greta Garbo, 117, apartment A. And she's in apartment C, so it was never delivered. Some other Greta Garbo must have gone. Um, anyway, when I moved back to L.A., um, I wrote him a letter, and he answered it, and we have been corresponding ever since. Wow. He, he uh, Sometimes they're handwritten, but more often than not, he, he writes on the same Olympia portable manual typewriter he got in high school. And it's so wonderful to see these things with flying letters and clogged Gs, there's no, if you make a mistake, you either leave it or XXXX and then type the next thing. And I mean, on that typewriter, he has written everything, uh, jokes that he sent to columnists in the 50s, his early stand-up material, his pieces for The New Yorker, the first drafts of all his scripts. They all came out of that machine. And he still hates changing the ribbon and still <laughs> doesn't quite have the hang of it. And so sometimes the letters, the lettering on the letters is so faint, you feel like you need to take it to the FBI to have forensics bring out what the 
letters are because he just hates changing the ribbon. Assuming, I mean, how do you even get typewriter ribbons now? Exactly. But anyway, so I, I have this remarkable correspondence that covers decades, and, and it's all sorts of stuff about what he's working on and questions about what I'm working on and what's happening in his personal life and funny stuff. And uh, as a matter of fact, in, in the mid-'80s, he wrote me a letter and at the bottom, he wrote, P.S., joke going around about woman who offers blowjob to Donald Trump, and he says, sure, but what's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, boy, did he predict the future wow. when we all found out just how self-centered and... Uh... <clears throat> anyway, when I wrote Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, which is available in paperback or on Amazon in the Kindle or audiobook version with me doing all the voices. Right, right. Um, Dick Cavett wrote the introduction, and Woody Allen provided a dust jacket blurb that wasn't even intended as that. He, When I sent him the manuscript, which I was... Uh, I sent him a letter saying I, I'm working on trying to set down my experiences with Groucho. And he wrote me back and he said, I think it's great you're doing a book on Groucho. There's never really been a great one. And I thought, oh, so now Woody Allen is expecting this to be the great book on Groucho, as if I don't have enough time with my own mental demons standing in my way. He's waiting for this to be great. I get this, I, so I sent him the manuscript when I was finished, and I got this letter by handwritten that was just one after the other. Uh, I wish you would ask me to help you get an agent because it's one of the best books about a show business icon I've ever read. It is bursting with live anecdotes and it is it makes groucho live so much more than the standard uh iconic uh biographies uh everything in there all the all the grouchoisms the all the stuff about the family and it's written with real wit you should be proud and i thought holy shit how could i mean when i sat watching take the money and run when i was 15 and thought, boy, this guy's funny, and then became a fan of his and thought, well, I'm, you know, again, as with so many of my heroes, I'm never going to meet him. And here he is essentially raving, and not for publication purposes, just as his feedback on the... And then, so I read that to the publisher, and he said, oh, we have to use that. And I said, wait a minute, we can't just use that. Um this was meant for me, and I don't know. I don't know that I've ever read a dust jacket blurb from Woody Allen, except for Cabot's book. Uh, and I thought, all right, I have nothing to lose. So I wrote, and he wrote back and said, "You can use quotes from the letter. Just make sure your name is larger than mine, and that you include it in with others." Right. So the others were Dick Abbott, Jack Lemon, and Steve Allen, and then Woody Allen. Wow. And I had this, 
and and Dick Cavett wrote the introduction. And I thought how strange there was the Cavett book in 74 with blurbs from Groucho and Woody. And now I've written about Groucho and Cavett wrote the intro and Woody wrote one of the dust jacket blurbs. It's kind of surreal. You, you finish the book, you, you have the book out. This is going to be made into what's the status on the film for the book? Uh, Astonishingly, despite the COVID plague, um, it's actually moving forward more than it was before. Um, every, every year for the past several years, I was getting uh, an option payment from the production company, which was very welcome. It was always nice to get that, sort of renting the rights to it for a year. Yeah. And recently, instead of... Oh, so last let me see in in it was the last option period was going to expire in may of this year but i heard from the production company saying because of covid shutting everything down we would like to pause the clock on the option and pick up the last few months after la and new york have opened again um, and I thought, oh, great, who knows when that's going to be. Yeah. But then, to my astonishment, uh, less than a month ago, they decided they weren't going to option it again. Instead, they were going to flat out buy the full rights to it, which was a tangible amount of money that was very welcome, and which also signified their seriousness in going ahead with it. I can't talk about some of the people involved, but um, I co-wrote the script, and we have a director, and uh, it's going out to different performers, and I can't talk about them. But what's really weird for me is that as with the book, it's not a biography of Groucho. It's the story of this young, gosh, gee golly fan who manages to get to work for his fading idol and also has to deal with this mercurial, ambitious woman. And so Aaron and Groucho and Steve are the three main characters. So someone as yet uncast is going to be playing Steve Stolier <laughs> with with mutton chops and a mustache and a full head of hair and uh, 70s clothes. And that's going to be really weird. It doesn't, I mean, no one's going to care if it really looks like me. When, when Woody was shooting Cafe Society out here, he wrote me and said, feel free to drop by the set and watch how not to make a movie. <laughs> and I took full advantage of that. I spent a lot of time on the set while he was out here. And it was just a million dollars worth of crash course and movie making and watching him work and listening to his stories. And he would show me what he's trying to do in each scene and all that. And he was, but he's also genuinely interested in what I'm up to. And we were, he said, so what's happening with your movie? What, what, what? And I said, well, it's, you know, little did I know that, that was five years ago and it still hasn't been made. 
But we were talking about possible casting for Groucho and for Aaron. Um, and he said, and you, nobody knows what you look like. You could get Orlando Bloom to play you, <laughs> uh, but it won't be Orlando Bloom. It'll be some young, young person. But uh, he, he's just been like Cavett, another person that, uh, you know, um, some years back, my wife died suddenly, and two of the people that really helped me stay on my feet emotionally and mentally were were Cavett and Woody Allen. Cavett had lost his wife to cancer a couple years before, right. and he would send me these really enlightening emails saying, like, uh, friends will tell you it gets a little easier every day. And you may thank them, of course, but they are full of shit. <laughs> and uh, saying yours is worse than mine because you had no time to prepare. And uh, things about, about your wife. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, a, a separate topic and a separate book, actually, that I've been working on. But um, he also said that uh, someone said to him, she isn't really about his wife. She isn't really gone. She's still with you in your heart. And he he said, "I don't want her in my heart. I want her in the fucking living room." <laughs> and and Woody Allen, who hasn't really suffered any kind of loss like that. I mean, his sister produces his films, and his parents each lived over a hundred, and. Uh, you know, his former wives are still around. So he hasn't really gone through that, but he still, you know, he would write me letters and say, I know it's impossible for you to believe it, but we humans are hardwired to cope with things like this. And even though it's like trying to remember what it feels like not to have the flu while you're in the midst of the flu, we do get through this. And... Another one said something like, as the great writer David Panitch once said, there comes a time in every man's life when he has to pick up a bar of shit and eat it. And I am sorry that this has happened to you. So, yeah, there's always this dark humor, but but like at least it wasn't the hallmark fortune cookie Bullshit. advice that yeah. other well-intentioned people would do. These guys were leveling with me. So Woody's always, you know, one of his one of his letters, he said, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Just what you need, an accused child molester on your side. <laughs> um, there's an entirely different subject uh, that gets me very angry because for those who have delved into it at all, they know that he is not only a little bit innocent, but entirely innocent of the scurrilous, scandalous things that Mia Farrow and Ronan have said, but because we live in a streaming age of scrolling through news stories and all that, uh, a whole new generation has grown up thinking that Woody Allen is a sick sexual predator, and it's really a matter of what Mia, what uh, Cabot said is Mia's uh, pathological vengeance over the fact that he and Soon Yi got together and have been happily married for 25 years with two adopted daughters that no one would ever have allowed 
if there was even a hint that they would be at peril, but I digress. Right. Anyway, uh, he's Woody's a mensch. He's a he's a great guy, and has been very supportive, and and um, and uh, it's always a joy to get to get a letter from him, hammered out on this manual typewriter. So the movie is in active development. They are looking to shoot it sooner than later. Obviously, we need the three leads cemented in, but. It is looking much more kinetic than it has in a while. Um, for a number of years, Rob Zombie, of all the unlikely people, was attached to it to direct. And it's it's unfortunate because he was typecast, understandably, as a horror guy. And I think ultimately that is what stood in the way of securing... Um, big names and backing because people were squeamish about trusting a project like that to someone who is only known for horror films. And I even wrote an op-ed piece for The Hollywood Reporter talking about all of the mainstream directors who started in horror movies, all the guys at Corman and uh, ending up talking about Robert Wise, who started out directing Curse of the Cat People and ended up with West Side Story and The Sound of Music. But uh, sadly, ultimately, people couldn't get past that, and it, and it stood in the way of getting it done. And he, he really, he loved my book, and he really, he, this is just the kind of movie I'm looking to to get away from horror. And um, he, he, we're still pals and we email each other and um he's a he's a great guy but it just reached a point where it wasn't moving forward so the production company and he parted ways so i remain very encouraged that it is going to be an actual motion picture uh how it will be seen we don't know we don't know if it will be streaming or or television or if there will still be brick and mortar theaters uh, attended by people, right. we don't know at this point. But uh, it it will be very gratifying to see uh, my movie turned into uh, or my book turned into a movie. What a, I mean, what strange, lucky set of circumstances that is. In addition, in addition to Amazon for the Kindle and the audiobook. I do have a supply of the paperbacks and would be happy to sign or inscribe uh, a copy to people if they want to go to my website, which is, of all all the coincidences, stevestolier.com, S-T-O-L-I-A-R. And you can order it there. It's just the cover price. I'm not soaking people for the thrill of my inscription. <laughs> and I would be happy to sign and send a copy to you. Uh, otherwise, there is Amazon. Not, not it's it's on Amazon, but not along the Amazon. So all <laughs> the people that flew down to the rainforest looking for raised eyebrows were sorely disappointed. Well, but I digress. The the books in Evergreen. It's it's if there ever was one. I've read it countless times. I urge everybody. Uh, to uh, uh, go and get this, and also to, to reach out to Steve at his 
at his uh, at Steve uh, stevestolier.com uh, where he just said you can get this autograph. Well, well, Steve, I, I, this has been an absolute honor, honor and a pleasure. Um, uh, well, thanks. And uh, <clears throat> please, please, uh, maybe we can have you back sometime to fill in. I, there's so much, so many good stories in the book that I don't want to spoil for everyone. Um, but thank, thank you. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. My pleasure, Johnny. You take care now. You too. Well, that's our show uh, for tonight and for the year, most likely. Uh, but we're going to be back in 2021 to kick your ass all over again. Um, hopefully, by then, we'll start to see some positive uh, signs that this virus is at least on the way out uh, in the new year. But until then, uh, we want to wish you and yours all the best. And uh, any parting shots for him, Mr. Uh, Slayton? Oh, happy holidays. Uh, be safe out there, folks, and uh, be kind to one another. Absolutely. And super, super thanks to Mr. Steve Stoliar and his wonderful, wonderful insight and stories into the uh, genius mind of Mr. Groucho Marx. Uh, stay switched on. We'll talk to you soon.